Want to see the world from a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. Hi, everyone. You are tuned in to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca. In the next hour, you're going to know a little bit more than you do now, so... I hope you'll stay with me here. little housekeeping. My web address is talkwithfrancesca.com. And if you miss part of this show, you can mosey on over to my iTunes page and listen there. This show is sponsored by Terramia Restaurante in the North End, when you will only accept the absolute best Italian food, great service, and an intimate setting. Terramia is your go-to spot. I know because it also happens to be my favorite. And there's parking. All right, then. I've said this before, but it does bear repeating. We are, all of us, meaning-seeking creatures. We seek not only to define the meaning of our lives, but also where do we come from? We can spend years, even decades, trying to make sense of our childhood. And if it was tumultuous and unstable, desperately searching for the truth. Muriel Schindler, my guest, had a fractured and difficult relationship with her father, who had a difficult relationship with truth. When he died in 2017, he left behind piles of Nazi-era documents related to their family's fate. And in a need to put order to her thoughts, Muriel has written The Lost Schindler, Unraveling Her Family History. Welcome, Muriel. Thanks for joining us tonight on Talk with Francesca. Hi, Francesca. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you very much. So give us a little bit about your background. So um, I'm a lawyer, I live in London, and I'm an employment lawyer, Uh, so I act primarily for senior executives uh, who are moving around or who get themselves into one sort of trouble or another. And um, I probably became a lawyer because of the difficulties my father had had in his life. Uh, He used to hire lots of lawyers, but actually, sadly, sad to say, never never actually paid those lawyers. Um, So um, I, I probably became a lawyer to help me understand the world a bit, a little bit better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe your relationship with your father? Um, as a young child, I, I really loved him. Um, but as I grew older, I recognized that he had a very difficult relationship with truth. Or, to put it another way, he was a bit of a liar, a bit of a fantasist. He was tall, charming, good-looking, and very persuasive, and a great raconteur. And he used to tell us all sorts of stories about where our family had come from and what they'd done and who we were related to. But sadly, as I grew up, I realized that some of those stories were actually not true. Mm. And why was he that way? What, what, that he would lie and make stuff up? What was that all about? He had a difficult start in life in that uh, when he was 13, he came from a, a, a well-to-do Jewish family in Innsbruck in the western side of Austria. And age 13, the, the Nazis rolled in and he had to flee as a penniless refugee to London. Uh, he was amongst the lucky ones because obviously he got out, as did his father and his mother. But I think that fleeing from one country to another, from being, you know, a boy who was chauffeur-driven to school to someone who had no money in London, I think I think that probably did mark him. But... Um, and, and had an effect on his life, basically, the fact that the Nazis took uh, all of his family's assets. And, and what about your mom? I was doing a little bit of research, and I didn't see anything about her. She, uh, when, when, when they got married, he was very much, um, I suppose, fleeing his, his own Jewish background. So my mother was not Jewish, um, and I think it was very much a love match. But, um, he, he, you know, I think he married her primarily because she wasn't Jewish. And he wanted to leave that sort of Jewish background far, far behind him. Oh, okay, okay. So um, how much did you know about his family history as you were growing up? I knew snippets. I think like a lot of kids, as you grow up, when you hear your parents say the same things over and over again, you tend to put your fingers in your ears and, <laughs> and go, you know, sort of, no, 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 I'm not listening. Um, so he, he told us bits and pieces, but whenever I asked questions, questions he never knew any detail so for example he would tell us about how his father my grandfather had fought in the first world war but he'd never be clear about where he fought who he fought for what you know what had happened um he was also you know very he liked to 
uh, tell very detailed stories about the cafe that my grandfather founded in 1922 in Innsbruck. And I think, you know, he, he, that cafe was very much, a, a, I suppose, a a centre of, of dancing and fun and an oasis of, of luxury in what was a very difficult time in Austria mm-hmm. um, after the First World War. And I think he, you know, for that, he, he looked back on those times, those interwar years when he was growing up as a time of, of, of luxury and, 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 and wealth, I suppose, for him. Do you have sisters and brothers? Yeah, I've got a younger sister and an older sister. Uh, and and um, are they as inquisitive as you? <laughs> yes, they both were very helpful in in putting together the research I needed to do for the book. Um, and they were helpful in different ways. My younger sister did, in the mar- did a marvellous family tree uh, for the book, and my older sister was incredibly helpful in looking after my father in his latter years, and I was somewhat estranged from him. Mm, okay, and then why were you? Why was I estranged? I think because I didn't like the fact that he... He was a fantasist and would tell lies about things and was constantly in debt and constantly asking for money. And I think it was just a difficult relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about your sisters? Did they have that same relationship? I think they were possibly less able to help him financially, so there was not as much strain in their relationships with him. Oh, okay. Okay. So he, he obviously had a faulty memory or, as you said, an interesting relationship with with truth. So what were some of the um, more outlandish things he told you about your family? And were any of them true? Ah, well, I think it's a mixed bag there. Uh-huh. I think it's a very good question. I suppose, um, on the one hand, he told us we were related to a lot of very well-known people. So, for example, he said we were related to Franz Kafka, the writer. He said we were related to Alma Mahler, the wife of... Um, uh, so, um, and he, he also said he, we were related to people like Bruno Kreisky, the president of Austria after the war, a lot of people like that. And most intriguingly of all, he said we were related to a chap called Dr. Bloch, who was um, Hitler's Jewish doctor. Um, and all of this seemed rather rather un- un- unbelievable, to be honest. <laughs> and I've researched a lot of it, and some of it was true, and some of it just wasn't true. And I think there are two, two very good examples of that, if you like. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, he said he was present during Kristallnacht, the pogrom in November 1938, uh, which basically was a pogrom designed to drive the Jews out of the German Reich. And he said he was present and that he had witnessed his father being beaten up by the Nazis. Obviously, you you wouldn't normally question that sort of traumatic story. In fact, I have uncovered incontrovertible evidence that although my grandfather was beaten up, my father was never present. He was safely in London. So that was quite a shock. Um, on the other hand, he told this story about this Jewish doctor uh, that Hitler had when he was growing up and who looked after Hitler's mother, Clara Hitler. And that story, which I, of course, didn't believe because who would have believed that Hitler had had a Jewish doctor, um, turned out actually to be true and we are related to Dr. Bloch. So lots of very interesting things I, I untangled in the book, if you like. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, there are a lot, of, um, and especially uh, way back then, um, secrets were really um, very commonplace in families. Was there ever any secrets that he he kept from the family for good reason? Um, I think he kept the fact from the family that he was not in Austria on Kristallnacht, that he did it. He did that because. He was trying to protect himself. I think he, he may have believed he was there, but he certainly wasn't there. Um, and he, he got himself into a lot of trouble with various uh, creditors and legal proceedings. And I think he used to use that anecdote of having witnessed his father being beaten up as a way of explaining away his own poor mental health. Mm. Did he ever get any help for his mental health? Probably not in those days, huh? Uh, not really in those days. I mean, all those talking therapies were, well, they became commonplace a lot later. Um, but he he did go to psychiatrists quite regularly when he needed um, an expert report for a legal case to sort of explain why he was behaving in the way that he behaved, and he did that repeatedly. It doesn't sound like he actually thought he had a problem in the first place. Uh, 
that is very perceptive, Francesca. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know how he, perceptive he it is. It's just kind of... He <laughs> didn't see himself as having a problem. He, it was always other people who had the problem. Uh, yeah, he, he actually sounded, sounds like he was a, a, a bit narcissistic, no? Yes, that is one of the, one of the uh, adjectives that is, have, have been used to describe him. <laughs> if you're just <laughs> tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Muriel Schindler. She's the author of The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth. Um, Muriel, tell us about Cafe Schindler. The cafe was an amazing place. It was in Innsbruck in beautiful Tyrol in the west of Austria, so surrounded by mountains in a small town. And it was founded by my grandfather when he returned from the First World War. And he'd fought that war up in the mountains on the southern front against the Italians. Um, and that had been a very brutal one. All wars are horrible. I think this had been a particularly brutal war because of the conditions in which it was fought. There's very little um, literature out there that describes that war, but obviously we do have Hemingway's description in A Farewell to Arms about how horrible that front was. Anyway, my grandfather survived. He returned to Austria, and Austria at that point was bankrupt. It, um, you know, the, the Allies had decreed that the, the, that the Austrian, Austro-Hungarian Empire should be split up, and Austria was left as a rump state and could barely feed itself. And in that economic chaos, my grandfather decided to open a cafe, and not just any old cafe, a beautiful cafe where you could dance, where you could drink exquisite coffee, eat beautiful cake. I hope you're feeling hungry. Um, yeah. And um, and and people people flocked to the cafe. Everyone who was anyone went there. And when I lived in Austria, when I was a, a late teenager. Um, and I would give my name to people and they would go, oh, the Cafe Schindler. I used to dance all night there. And this was decades after it had closed. So it was something that was very much in the zeitgeist, a very special place. You roll on to 1938, the Nazis arrive, and the cafe is taken over by a Nazi who renames it, but runs it essentially in the same way, different music, but essentially in the same way, and it becomes a Nazi officer's drinking club. After the war, when the Nazis had lost the war, it was in fact restituted to my grandfather, and my grandfather was one of the very, very few Jews who returned to the Tyrol. And he returned to reopen his beloved cafe. Sadly, he didn't live for very long, and he died in 1952, mm. at which point the cafe was passed to my father and his cousin, his first cousin. My father promptly fell out with his first cousin, and the cafe was eventually sold. Oh, well, um, you know what? I want to I wanna pick... We, we do need to take a short break, but I definitely want to pick up mm-hmm. um, where we're leaving off on that one. Um, so listeners, sure. stay with us here. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. This is life, don't miss it. Talk with Francesca coming right up on 95.9 WATD. Tides is beachside dining at its best all year round. Located at the end of the Nahant Causeway, directly on Nahant Beach, the ocean views from the dining room and the pub can't be beat. Tide specializes in casual dining with food that's delicious, not pretentious. On a warm day, enjoy a frosty pint at their bar or the sun-drenched deck on Nahant Beach. Or enjoy an incredible meal in their dining room anytime. Tides guarantees you great atmosphere with superior service. The menu at Tides is full of fresh, high-quality seafood, prime rib, chicken, pasta, and pizza that everyone will love. Check out the drink menu at Tides for fun cocktails, 30 ice-cold beers on tap, and their well-rounded wine list with state-of-the-art tap wines. Tides is unbeatable anytime, summer or winter, lunch or dinner, rain or shine. Visit TidesNahan.com. Need a reliable place for your pet? Does your dog crave extra stimulation instead of social isolation? Sign up for Doggy Daycare at the Dog's Den in Pembroke. With two separate yards and plenty of supervision, your dog will have a ball and tug-of-war toys and plenty of new friends. The Dog's Den also specializes in grooming. Each groomer at the Dog's Den has decades of experience and will leave your furry friend refreshed and ready for their next adventure. Schedule your grooming or daycare today at thedogsdengrooming.com. 
plan a wonderful evening in Boston's North End, highlighted by one of the neighborhood's best-kept secrets, Antico Forno. Renowned as one of the world's most authentic Italian restaurants, Antico Forno provides you with an unforgettable dining experience featuring world-class traditional Italian dishes cooked in their beautiful brick oven. Outdoor dining is now available too. Whether seated inside or enjoying an evening under the stars, when you eat at Antico Forno, you feel like part of the family. Antico Forno is open seven days a week. See their menu and make your reservation online at AnticoFornoBoston.com. Now for more talk with Francesca on 95.9 WATD. And we are back, and I am speaking with Muriel Schindler. She is the author of The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth. Welcome back, Muriel. Thank you. So, so before the break, we were talking about Cafe Schindler, and we uh, stopped in, uh, at the point where your father had taken over the cafe. Is that right? Yes. So he inherited the cafe um, in 1952 with his cousin, and he promptly fell out with his cousin, and they had they had to sell the cafe. He promptly. I'm sorry. Say that again. He promptly what? He promptly fell out with his cousin. Oh, and, you know, okay. Got into a feud with his cousin, and they eventually sold the cafe, and it disappeared off the high street by the sort of early 1970s. But it still lived on in people's imaginations. They still remembered it as this oasis of sun, this mm. place of luxury, and they 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 loved it. They genuinely loved it. And then um, in 2016, uh, I was on holiday with my family in Innsbruck. And I was doing the normal thing that parents do, which is telling the kids, I've got three kids, about the cafe. And we were literally walking down the high street. And I look up to show them where the cafe stood. And lo and behold, the name is back. Suddenly, the name Schindler is back on the high street. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what's happened here? So I storm into the cafe and say, can I speak to the owner? And the kids are following me, of course, thinking, oh, my God, she's going to make a scene. And... um, the cafe owner, you know, it, it emerges that he has, he decided to move to Innsbruck, knew nothing about our history. But when he wanted to open a cafe in that building, anyone and everyone had told him, my friend, it has to be called Cafe Schindler. So he'd gone and looked us up and worked out that we had a fantastic heritage and that we'd run a cafe there in the 1920s and 30s. So he knew that he had a heritage, and this year the cafe will actually celebrate its 100th anniversary. Oh and I think I'm right in saying that it is the only originally Jewish-owned business that is still going in Innsbruck. Oh my gosh! Tell us a little bit. Paint a little bit more of a picture about the cafe, because I mean, it's funny. I'm, I'm thinking when you when you think of a cafe, you think of coffees and pastries. You don't necessarily think of dancing. So it sounds like it was pretty elaborate. Yeah, it was a triple fronted building on the main street, and when you you arrive, it's the, the cafe area was on the first floor. Um, you'd be shown to a banquette perpendicular to the window. You'd be able to look out onto the main street. You could see to your right the mountains, the Nordkette, um, often obviously snow-decked in, in this time of year. And above that, there were two more floors. There, were not, there was not one, but two ballrooms, a billiard oh, room, wow. a bridge room. So it was a quite an elaborately, you know, quite an elaborate business. And um, it was the first, one of the first places in Western Austria that you heard jazz in the 1920s. My grandfather loved music. And basically, he had parties there most nights of the week. Um, I've had a look at some of the timetables um, and some of the invites um, in the local archives. And basically, there was, a, there was a party there most evenings, often until two in the morning. And I think that's why people loved it so much. They could meet people there. Yeah, it, it sounds like it was, uh, well, obviously, the place to go. Was there any other places, anything like it? It was the only dance cafe in town. Mm. Were there more uh, men than women that went there? Couples, families? Oh, that's an interesting thing. I mean, I I think, obviously, before the First World War, when, you know, uh, the sexes were more balanced. After the First World War, an awful lot of boys had been killed. So in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, I suspect there was um, a deficit of men um, in, in the cafe. And I can tell that because um, there was an all-female band, for example, to play there. And I think that would have been quite quite unusual at the time. But I think that was 
really as a result of a lot of boys being killed in the first world war. Do you think there was any kind of um, foul play that went on there? Um, foul play is an interesting question because um, when the Nazis took over the cafe in 1938, it was renamed Cafe Hebel. And um, the chap who took it over was, in fact, a black marketeer. And as and when he realized that he was running out of luxury food to serve in the cafe, he basically illegally imported food from other parts of the German Empire. And the, the, the top people in Berlin worked out that there was some black marketeering going on. Interestingly, black marketeering in, in the sort of Nazi times was a capital offense. You could be shot for it. And he was arrested and tried for black marketeering and faced the death sentence. He got in touch with Himba and basically said, look, I'm running this incredibly important cafe that's important for Nazi morale. And Himmler ensured, essentially, that he got off with a two-week stint at the front, fighting, as opposed to being put in front of a firing squad. So, yes, there was some skullduggery that went on in the cafe, not under my family's um, time, but in the time that the Nazis were running it. Mm. So, uh, on a different note here, um, you know, during this vortex of change, you know, with so much, you know, going on now with with um, the pandemic, so many have tried to write a book, but but you did, um, and you called yourself in an interview uh, an accidental author. What, why is that? Uh, that's uh, yeah. So, I and mean, I think most people um, are writers, if, and, they, and they can be writers if they want to be. Um, I suppose as a lawyer, I write a lot for other people, but this was an important story that I needed to sort out in my head. After my father died, I had an awful lot of anecdotes racing around my head of things he told me, but I could never really quite believe. And I think that was the starting point, was trying to work out what was true and what was not true, and to separate facts from fiction. And that's where I started. And during the pandemic, obviously, we had a bit more time and right. a bit more time at home. And I think that was a good opportunity to, I suppose, do that research and knuckle down to the writing. I was also incredibly lucky because my law firm gave me a three-month sabbatical to go and research it. So I was very, very lucky. Wow. You know, in, in the beginning of the show, I was saying that, you know, we're all meaning-seeking creatures that we seek not only to define the meaning of our lives but also where we come from and and you know we spend years sometimes even decades trying to make sense of our childhood which it sounds like that is the case for you as well is that am I correct in that assumption yes I, I, mean, I spent most of my adult life trying to keep my father at arm's length because he was yeah, he was difficult he, he he went to jail for fraud at one point I mean let's not be let's not beat about bush um, he, he went to jail for fraud. He was a difficult man. Mm-hmm. And so I very much tried to keep him at arm's length from, from me and from my family. Um, oh, okay. And when when he died and when we arrived in his cottage um, to sort out you know, the, what was there and what we needed to talk about after he died, it was completely apparent that he had been essentially adrift for years, I mean, most of his life, I think, in trying to follow up restitution claims against the German government and against people in Austria. And they were ever more far-fetched, those claims. And, you know, that's, it was a life, I think a, a life wasted in many ways. He never moved on from being that victim of the war. Mm-hmm. Why, so why was it, though, that you, you had such a, a need to make sense of this? I suppose I like certainty. Um, I I like to understand where I come from and what was true in the things that he had told us. And that some of the paperwork we found in that cottage where he died was really quite disturbing. So not only did we find, as as you said in the intro, lots of Nazi-era documents, lots and lots and lots of correspondence ending Heil Hitler and blazing the swastikas. And I speak German so I can read this stuff. But there were also really, really dark documents. So, for example, there were several reports by private detectives on me and on my sister. So my father had hired private detectives to basically follow his daughters. Why? Ah, 
why uh, why does a parent do that sort of thing? I mean, he would say it's because he loves us and wants to look after us. We would say that was a gross intrusion of our privacy. Right. As young adult women. <laughs> controlling. Con- very controlling, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, but it's quite shocking to see reports on you, um, you know, that they're, they were reports from 30 years old, but, you know, they were very disturbing to find that these are private detectives. Mm. How did that all affect you? Well, I feel I ought to be on the couch in your office now. <laughs> <laughs> I think it made me quite angry. I think um, yeah. I, I had done my best to keep him at arm's length. And um, so when I went traveling around South America as a, as a, in my late teens, early 20s, you know, there's no way a detective could track me. This is the pre-internet era. Um, but my sister, however, he was a lot more successful in, in, in tracking her down. And, you know, he wrote reports on her boyfriend. And I don't think that's appropriate at all. Hmm. Well, I, I was going to ask you um, another question that would put you on the couch, but um, you, you got out of it because my producer just gave me a signal that we need to take a break. But, but I'll, <laughs> I'll catch you on the way back. So anyway, listeners, stay with us here. Don't go anywhere. This is This is Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. We'll talk more in just a bit on 95.9 WATD. Who doesn't go to the hair salon to liven up their looks? Though sometimes you look worse on the way out than you did walking in. You can expect something different at Hair Design Fationa. With a super modern feel that can hardly be mistaken for suburban, a full service hair salon, they offer cuts, color, highlighting, and formal design. Fationa is originally from Europe where she owned her own salon. With an impressive following, she won't disappoint. I know because I can tell you from my own experience, I felt transformed and you will too. So if you're looking to turn a few heads, call Fationa today at 781-964-3770. Conveniently located at 834 Washington Street in Braintree or visit her on Facebook. That number again is 781-964-3770. Call today, you'll be thrilled. I know you will. Ladies, are you tired of looking tired, noticing fine lines and stubborn wrinkles that won't go away? The professional team at Jolie Medical Spa in Marshfield offers Botox, fillers, all therapy, skin lifting and tightening, hydrofacials, IV hydration, and more. The warm and caring manner at Jolie Medical Spa will make you feel like you're coming in for a cup of coffee, but instead, you'll leave with a relaxed look on your face. Located conveniently at 435 Furnace Street in Marshfield, call them today at 781-248-5769 or visit them at www.joliemedspa.com to schedule your free consultation and know you are in the best of hands. Just wait for your friends to ask where you went on vacation because you know they will. They say you are what you eat. In fact, the path to much of your health begins at your mouth. Dr. Nathaniel Chan from Advanced Dental Arts in Quincy and Norwell would like to take the time to show you how the well-being of your head, neck, and mouth affect your overall health. The family dentistry practiced at Advanced Dental Arts helps every member of your household have healthy teeth and prevent periodontal gum disease. Dr. Chan in particular focuses on cosmetics, sleep apnea, TMJ, and migraine pain. Even if you're not a patient, you can meet with Dr. Chan to discuss whitening, veneers, Invisalign clear braces, or implants. Reach out to Dr. Nathaniel Chan today to set up a free consultation at his office at either 353 Washington Street in Norwell or at 1250 Hancock Street in Quincy. Visit drnathanielchan.com. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terramia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy trattoria with stucco walls and beam ceiling specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisine here, the atmosphere is elegant, yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Ristorante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing. And best of all, it's reasonably priced. The best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112. That's 617-523-3112. Or visit terramiaristorante.com. Hey, 
Hey, this is James Woods, and you are listening to Talk with Francesca. On 95.9 WATD. And we are back, and I'm speaking with the author of The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Thru truth muriel schindler um muriel so uh back on the couch but just for a second i promise um so you as you were you know investigating and researching how did you compartmentalize um and keep this from your the life that you were actually living i mean did it all start to become i mean this kind of thing can be very disturbing um and so i'm curious how you were able to separate that out Oh, you ask very interesting questions. Um, <laughs> yes, you're right. I have a very full-on day job as an employment lawyer fighting my client's corner in various cases. And what I was doing essentially was um, researching stuff at weekends and evenings. And then literally I had two laptops. I would put away my writing laptop on a Sunday evening and open my work laptop and start going as an employment lawyer again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's sustainable for a period of time. Um, but I was very, very lucky in that like, my law firm gave me a sabbatical of three months to go and finish writing the book. So I, that's what I did. I, I then traveled and wrote the book in a lot of it in that time. Yeah, because I, 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 I think that sometimes when there's, you know, as I said, disturbing things, I mean, no matter how hard we try to, you know, put those to the side, um, that can be, you know, certainly it can be a challenge, right, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Right. And writing is quite therapeutic, I think. Um, you know, oh, it is. Writing is therapeutic, isn't it? Stuff out, you know, it's it's good. it's a good thing to do. It's a really good thing to I, do. I've had a difficult I, childhood. Oh, I think so too. I mean, I'm a creative writer as well, and um, I find it extremely therapeutic. I love it. Um, it, it just the free writing, the whole experience. It's amazing when you really let yourself go and just start writing. It's like you know your subconscious just start starts going. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it can be far more therapeutic than than um, other forms of, of uh, therapy. Um, but so how did writing the book impact your life? Did it change it? It's had an amazing reception, the book. Um, so it's been out since May in the UK and it's been since October 21 in, in the US. And I have had emails most days from people all over the world saying how much they've loved the book. And that's been incredible. I've had emails from Holocaust survivors, from people who have you know, Jewish grandparents who've told a bit of a story but not a full story, and also from lots of other people who've enjoyed the book, um, people who've liked the fact that there are recipes in the book. It's a very, it's a book that I suppose speaks to lots of different people on different levels, and it's a different way of telling the Holocaust story through the eyes of a cafe, which was essentially an eyewitness to history in a very troubled part of, of the world. Mm-hmm. Is this the only book that you've written? It's the only book I've written um, in this arena, yes. I'm not obviously right for a living in terms of being a lawyer because I write articles and things, right. but not books. Right, right, right. So now do you think you'll write another book? <laughs> um, I have a, a few ideas cooking away, but I, you never know. I mean, I think it's... You have to know why you're writing a book. Um, and, yes. And you have to have something important to say, I think. So what would you say is the main reason that you wrote the book? The main reason was to sort out facts and fiction. Mm, um, it, that's, that's why I wrote it. And then I realized that the story of the Jews of Western Austria hadn't been told. So when, when people think about Jews in Austria, they always think about Vienna. And no one had written a book about Western Austria, about Innsbruck. Mm-hmm. And one of the extraordinary things about that area is that there were almost no Jews. And yet, Kristallnacht, the November pogrom in 38, was one of the most murderous in the entire German Reich. So there was something about this incredibly beautiful place that had a, a, a very venomous strain of anti-Semitism just below the surface that was packed into by the Nazis and with, you know, with very detrimental effects for the Jews who live there, for the very few Jews who live there. You know, it just occurred to me, I don't know why this popped into my head, but <clears throat> now your father was Jewish, obviously, but your mother, you said, was not. Is that right? Correct. Yes, correct. And my understanding is when that is the case, that the children do not get brought up Jewish, that the mother has to be Jewish. Correct. Right? So do you, ca- correct. Ca- so do you consider yourself Jewish? 
I consider myself to be half Jewish by blood, um, but I'm not uh, Jewish by religion. And, um, you know, I'm actually married to a Jewish man, so my kids are kind of three-quarters Jewish by blood. So, um, you <laughs> All right, well, I, there's enough I, Jewish I in there then. <laughs> there's enough. Yeah, yeah. So do you celebrate um, Christmas at all? or do you? Or, or we celebrate Hanukkah? Christmas and Hanukkah. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> they get it, okay, they get it both. Okay, good for them. So, you know, I'm, I'm also thinking that, you know, so many children of Holocaust survivors would dream of finding a trunk full of documents, letters, photos, you know, that yeah. in an attic that would provide answers to the questions they could never quite bring themselves to ask their surviving relatives. And you actually did. What was that like for you? I think I was astonished that he had saved so much, but um, he was a real hoarder. Ah, and amongst okay. the, the paperwork that we found in that cottage where after he died, there was, I mean, extraordinary. There were random bits of very banal stuff, like bits of paper where he jotted down train times that we were going to arrive on for the trains, you know, when they were visiting him, to, you know, clippings from newspapers going back decades. And then there were, you know, family documents and these extraordinary Nazi-era documents um, telling the story of, of, of the cafe. But also, um, one of the one of the most in, interesting things we found were, were 13 photo albums of photos going right back to pre-First World War Austria. And they were amazing. I had never seen them before. And they had pictures of, you know, young men in 1914 going off to fight for their Kaiser, for Kaiser Franz Josef, and suddenly realizing that these were people, these were Jews who were very rooted in this part of the world, who put on that uniform with enormous pride as a mark of their assimilation into Austrian society. And yet, you know, you roll on from, you know, 1914 to 1938, and you look at how, how the Jews were treated. Um, it made no difference, of course, if they had fought for the Austrian Empire. It's also fascinating. It's, you know, I just, I, um, you know, I'm thinking that you said your father was a hoarder. And, um, you know, it, it makes me wonder, you know, about people who are hoarders, that, you know, Maybe it's that they're they themselves are looking for meaning, and so they keep everything. You, yes, yeah, right. I think yes, there's I think some. That's... I think there's something to be said for that. You know, it's always just sort of this label. Ah, oh, that person's a hoarder. Well, I don't know. I think that it, it goes a little bit deeper than that. You know, no, they're collectors, and, they're and they're we do to we together. And again, we do we do do do. We like to find meaning. You know, many many years ago, um, I. Uh, had owned a an old Victorian home, and it was a big renovation job. And um, when we started um, breaking, you know, tearing down the walls, and we found um, psychiatric notes within the walls, and it was just really fat. Oh, wow. It was really, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but anyway, you know, it's just it's so it's interesting that the things that people keep, you know, and and mm-hmm. and really why they keep them you know so i just i don't know i i just found that um that really interesting when you kind of jumped out at me when you said hoarder um why didn't your father want you and your sister to tell anyone that you were jewish on a simple level i think that was because he was trying to protect us because being Mm. jewish when he was a kid was dangerous Mm, right um and he was a he was an assimilator you know he, he wanted to assimilate more than anything else that's why he married a non-Jewish woman. It's why he, you know, made, brought us up in a way that, you know, essentially denied our Jewish heritage. Um, he, 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 I think he clearly felt that it was dangerous. Mm. How do you feel about him denying your Jewish heritage? <laughs> um, I, the fact I married a Jewish man probably speaks volumes. Probably what, Freudian? Is that what you said? Probably speaks volumes, the fact I married a Jewish man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, so, yeah, well, I think that's interesting that, you know, that, that you had this uh, fragmented, uh, tumultuous kind of relationship with your father, and then yet, did you, no, well, um, uh, is, no, is your husband, and he ends up being Jewish, isn't that kind of funny, right? Yeah. So, um, hopeful, hopefully he has a, a better relationship with um the truth and honesty than than your father. Okay, we're going to take another short break, and listeners, more to come. Don't go anywhere. 
Francesca coming right up on 95.9 WATD. Looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terramia Ristorante, a true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End. This cozy trattoria with stucco walls and beam ceiling specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisine here, the atmosphere is elegant, yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia Ristorante has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than just red sauce. Over the years, the innovative and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing. And best of all, it's reasonably priced. The best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112. That's 617-523-3112. Or visit terramiaristorante.com. Need a reliable place for your pet? Does your dog crave extra stimulation instead of social isolation? Sign up for doggy daycare at the Dog's Den in Pembroke. With two separate yards and plenty of supervision, your dog will have a ball and tug-of-war toys and plenty of new friends. The Dog's Den also specializes in grooming. Each groomer at the Dog's Den has decades of experience and will leave your furry friend refreshed and ready for their next adventure. Schedule your grooming or daycare today at thedogsdengrooming.com. Who doesn't go to the hair salon to liven up their looks? Though sometimes you look worse on the way out than you did walking in. You can expect something different at Hair Design Fationa. With a super modern feel that can hardly be mistaken for suburban, a full-service hair salon, they offer cuts, color, highlighting, and formal design. Fationa is originally from Europe where she owned her own salon. With an impressive following, she won't disappoint. I know because I can tell you from my own experience, I felt transformed and you will too. So if you're looking to turn a few heads, call Fatian today at 781-964-3770. Conveniently located at 834 Washington Street in Braintree or visit her on Facebook. That number again is 781-964-3770. Call today, you'll be thrilled. I know you will. You're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luca. The talk continues on 95.9 WATD. And we we are back. I have a very interesting guest this evening, Muriel Schindler. She is the author of The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth. So, uh, Muriel, so how did your training as a lawyer help you when you were researching and writing your book? I think that um, being a lawyer means you're not really frightened of a, of a whole pile of documents. Um, and my father's documents were certainly, there were piles and piles of them, and they were not in any kind of order. So I think it makes it gives you a sort of methodical way of, of working your way through documents and trying to distill them into something that is a coherent narrative. Uh, I think that's very much the training of a lawyer. So at the time of your father's death, which was actually not all that long ago, what, five years ago? 2017, yes. So uh, did you feel closer to him or further apart from him now that you know the truth? I think I feel much calmer. Um, I was, a lot of my adult life, I was quite angry with him uh, as he had led us such a song and dance as a family and everything had been very unstable as a family. And certainly much calmer and I understand now that what he has bequeathed to me is an incredibly rich interesting family history so there were no assets when he died I mean he died destitute let's be, let's be clear about that but what he actually gave me was an intellect and an ability to look at the story of our family and write it down mm-hmm. and my goodness it was such a rich and interesting story to investigate. Is your mother alive? No, sadly, she predeceased my father. And were you close to your mother? Yes. Ah, okay. And so, and did your mother work? Yes, uh, she, I mean, she worked as a secretary in the 1950s and 60s, and then when my dad was in jail, mm-hmm. she worked again as a secretary. She was a very bright woman, but probably never fulfilled her, her, her full intellectual potential. Mm-hmm. She was a woman of her time. Your book looks at things that happened in Europe. Uh, there was there were several uh, American connections. Do you care to share them? Well, 
Well, I mentioned um, Hemingway, um, A Farewell to Arms, which is an amazing book and describes the, the battle around Caporetto in present-day Slovenia. So it gives you some idea of how horrendous the wartime conditions were in the First World War in that part of the world when my grandfather fought. Um, and then, of course, America loomed large on the horizon after the end of the First World War because President Wilson comes to Europe in order to try and sort out what to do with this broken Europe and what to do with the Germans and the Austrians. Mm-hmm. And he is very instrumental, although very ill at the time, I think, um, in deciding what happens to Austria. Mm-hmm. And in particular, one of the decisions that he helped form was the fact that the South Tyrol, which was part of Austria, was given to the Italians. And it had been part of um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and very much an important part of the Tyrol because it was where anything that was uh, worth having, such as you know, wine um, and uh, olives and soft fruit, all of that, all of those goods flowed over the Brenner Pass into the North Tyrol, into Innsbruck. But after the First World War, when that when the South Tyrol was given to the Italians, the North Tyrol very much lost out and was um, very saddened and very traumatized by that loss of territory. Mm-hmm. I think you know, he had quite a big hand in that as the American president. And I understand that when he died, it was one of the decisions that he rather regretted that he'd given that piece of territory to Italy. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to write your book? Ooh, almost about three years. And how long did it, did you, but how long did it take you, did you investigate first and, and spend time yes. there? And so how much time in total between investigating, researching, and then writing? It was more than three years, right? Uh, no, no, I think it was three years. And that he died in 2017. And, you know, I'd, I'd hand in the manuscript by... January 2020, so it takes a long time for books to get published because it obviously goes through proofreaders and yeah, lawyers and yeah. publishers and right. God knows what. So, right. um, you know, it, 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 took, it took about three years. A lot of uh, people write, uh, write and write and write and write, but they never uh, publish a book. How did you manage to, to be able to do that? I was incredibly lucky, Francesca, in that I had a client who was in publishing and I asked question that every employment lawyer will always ask the client after someone has lost their job, which is, what are you going to do next, my friend? Uh, and he said, for the I'm going to write a book. Time ever, <laughs> he said, no, he said, I'm going to be a literary agent. Oh, <laughs> perfect. Um, it, it was just lovely. So after I finished acting for him, literally the very next day, I sent him an email saying, look, I've got this idea for a book. What do you think? Uh, and he rang me immediately and said, will you be my first client? <gasps> so I was incredibly lucky. Uh, well, yeah, or, you know, it was just, you could say it's the right place at the right time, or you could say that it was meant to be, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Do you think that way? Does that, did it ever occur? Uh, I, I just, I think it was just one of those, you know, it was serendipity. It was one of those really lucky coincidences and he was a brilliant agent. He just really believed in the story. He thought it was absolutely fascinating he loved the way i wrote and he he sold it very quickly to um a publisher both in in the uk and in the us so i I was i was just very lucky basically and how do you think that your father would have reacted to your book (laughs) i think that's a very good question um He's someone who loved the idea of having his name on something. Mm, I figured. He would love the idea that the cafe is back. He would love the fact there's a book out there. But the moment he read about what I'd written in there about the untruth he had told, I think he would reach for the nearest lawyer and sue me. (laughs) Do you really? Seriously? Do you think? Absolutely. He, He had no compunction about suing people, even family members. So he would absolutely have done that. You think he would have sued you? So is that why you waited until he passed away? I didn't have the motivation to do it before, before anyway. And once I had looked at the documents that after he died um, and realized what an incredible story there was in there, mm-hmm. I think that's the only... T- I wouldn't have looked at the documents before he died or at the photos. I mean, there were extraordinary photos um, of people I, I just didn't know who they were and I wanted to find out who they were and to honor them and one of the amazing things that's come out of this is I have put you know created links with family who had 
basically, you know, we'd fallen out with, and now we are all friends again. Mm, so nice. it's incredibly important. I've now got relations right across the U.S. who are, it's just lovely to have them in my life. And now you have Cafe Schindler teacups that you can drink tea during Zoom yeah. meetings, right? <laughs> <laughs> we just have a couple. We just have, right. yeah. We just have a couple of minutes left here. But I would love you to share the the uh, story of the Cafe Chandler teacups that you used as a child, if you can do it in two minutes. <laughs> oh, I can do that in two minutes. Yes, I mean we literally grew up with these ceramic memories from the, the cafe. It had long since closed, but my father had hung on to a few of the cups, and they had Cafe Chandler on them. So I always knew there was a cafe, but I never knew not much about it. Mm-hmm. And there were also some cups that had Cafe Hebel on them. But I never knew why they had Cafe Hugo on them. They were the Nazi cups. So when I now pick up those cups, I kind of, I'm not sure who drank out of them. I don't really use the ones with Cafe Hugo on them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Is there anything that um, I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with our audience before we say goodnight? Oh, I think the fact that um, this is, a, this is a, a family history, but it's much more than that. It's an interesting book and an interesting way of seeing the Holocaust. Plus, it's got some very good recipes in it at the back for some cakes. <laughs> we can always use another recipe. Well, Muriel Schindler, the Lost Cafe Schindler, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Talk with Francesca. It's really been an interesting uh, show. Thank, thanks again. It's been an honor and a pleasure. All right. We've got to wrap things up and say goodnight. Hope you enjoyed the show. See you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great week. Mm-hmm.